Hey, thank you for listening. Did you know I have a YouTube channel? I have over 130 different videos. I have videos with more scary stories told in the rain, scary stories by a crackling fire, and I also have videos that are less relaxing and more on the scary side. Go check it out, and please don't forget to subscribe. In the YouTube search bar, just type being scared. All right. Catch you later. When I was 14, I went on a cruise with my parents. The cruise honestly was a very cheap one. My parents did not like it. At night there were people in their 20s partying and being incredibly loud all night long, and my parents found it very difficult to relax anywhere other than their stateroom. I had more fun than they did especially because they allowed me to walk around by myself sometimes. I had to be back in my room by 10 o'clock, but from like 8 o'clock to 10, I could pretty much walk around and do whatever I wanted. I tried to talk to a few other teenagers that I saw, but I didn't really make any friends. One night, I was sitting on the top deck, just scrolling on my phone. I wasn't right next to the railing, which was about 5 feet high, but I was about 10 yards away from it, sitting at a table, minding my own business, just enjoying the night air. Honestly, looking over the side of the ship and into the dark abyss of the black ocean at night was the creepiest thing I had ever seen. I looked over the railing a few times on that cruise, and I will never forget what it looked like. It looked like death. Cold, black, lonely death. It was funny, honestly, because during the day, the ocean was bright blue and beautiful, super peaceful. At night, not so much. So as I sit in my chair with my feet up on another chair, I looked up to my left and saw a man and woman walk out of the stairway door and they were obviously very drunk. They were falling over and slurring their words like crazy. I couldn't even understand what they were saying to each other. The huge umbrella that would normally be standing up and positioned into the hole in the center of the table I was sitting at was laying down next to me, next to the table and my chair, blocking my vision from these people. I had to lean back to see them. They stumbled over to the railing of the ship, and immediately my knees became weak at the thought of them falling overboard. I actually thought this was a possibility because of how drunk they seemed to be. Well, they began making out, and I felt uncomfortable watching, so I leaned forward again and resumed scrolling the pictures on my phone. I couldn't hear anything except distant people laughing and partying somewhere else on the ship, and the crashing of the waves below. After a minute or so, out of curiosity, I leaned back again to see the couple and the woman was gone. The man was still standing there, just looking over the side. I immediately became very aware that that man did not know I was there, and my blood turned cold when I realized at the same time that I was pretty sure he had just pushed her, through her, or did something to that woman. The man then just turned around and stumbled back to the door and down the stairs. After a minute of heavy contemplation, I got up, walked over to the railing, 
and looked down into the dark ocean. I almost got sick to my stomach as I saw what a horrid and excruciatingly terrifying death it would be to fall into that abyss. Everything was silent except for the waves. I had to leave. I went back to my room early and I told my parents what I thought I witnessed. They did not believe me and they didn't take me seriously. Three days later we left that ship and I honestly still think about it all the time. And this happened eight years ago. I will never know if that woman fell or if she was pushed. But I can tell you this. There's no way she walked away in the seconds that I was not looking. And the door made a very loud noise when it was opened and closed. She went into the water that night. And I have had a few nightmares of falling overboard myself. I really wish I would have said something to someone else other than my passive parents. Not that it would have helped that poor woman. I wonder often what she was thinking as she hit the water and got pulled under the ship into the freezing cold, dark hell that the ocean is at night. Five years ago, I worked as a CNA at an East Tennessee nursing home. While working there, there was a resident named Helen, and upon getting my hall assignment, I was told by my hall partner that everyone that worked there believed her to be possessed. Right. Whatever. Helen turned out to be one of the more difficult residents, to say the least. She was wheelchair-bound and would scoot herself up and down the hall, muttering to herself, and sometimes without warning, she would attack someone close to her, be it a fellow resident, staff, or visitor, clawing, hitting, kicking, until she was pulled off of the poor person. She did have incredible strength when these attacks happened, and she would growl these deep, guttural growls. We ended up having to keep her isolated in a room alone, with her wheelchair locked to keep the other residents safe. A few months into the job, I switched to night shift on the same hall because the shift differential was a little over a dollar more on the hour. I was told by the night shift nurse that Helen was just as much a handful at night as she was in the day. One night, a new charge nurse had gotten assigned to my hall. In the mornings before day shift started, the nurse had to give all morning meds. I warned her not to interact with Helen unless I was with her. That little bitty old thing? She asked. She can't be more than 85 pounds soaking wet. 87 and a half, I said, and it takes five CNAs to bathe her. She looked at me like she didn't believe me, but agreed to let me know before she medicated her. Right before I started my end-of-shift charting, the nurse told me she was ready to administer Helen's meds. I nodded, stood up, and followed her to Helen's room, where she lay restrained. I went to get a pair of gloves from the dispenser, but they were empty. I turned to the nurse and said, I'll run to the stockroom for a box of gloves. Don't touch her until I get back. 
I saw the nurse roll her eyes as I exited the room. Coming back from the stockroom, I heard cries of help ringing down the hall. The CNA from the adjacent hall was already running towards the sound, and I followed. The source was the ever-doubting newbie nurse who had undone the wrist straps of the sweet old lady and was now being clawed at. She had a handful of her hair from the back of her head and was digging her fingers into her throat, which was all scratched up and bleeding. Helen was screaming in a guttural rasp, I hate you. It took me, the other CNA, and another nurse to pry Helen's fingers off of the poor lady and restrain her once again. The nurse from the other hall was cleaning my nurse's wounds while I took down an incident report. She said through sobs that after I left, Helen spoke to her in a sweet voice, told her good morning, and smiled at her. She asked if she would mind helping her to the bathroom. Helen was incontinent and hadn't used a toilet in over a year. The nurse told her that of course she would, and removed the wrist restraints, when Helen suddenly pounced. She cried harder, saying, Her voice, even the smell of her completely changed. The nurse had deep lacerations to her throat, and was missing a patch of hair. Helen had ripped it from her skull. That nurse quit that night. There were many other instances, too. I became terrified of caring for that woman. The worst happened on my last night working at the nursing home. I was about to leave. I had already clocked out, but remembered that I needed to tell the day shift CNAs about a resident having an out-of-facility doctor appointment that one of them would have to ride with them to. I spotted them down the hall and called out to them, walking in their direction. I was passing Helen's room, did a double take, and stopped dead in my tracks. Day shift had already gotten Helen up and in her wheelchair. It was in its locked position in the middle of her room, but she somehow had gotten one hand free from the restraint and was chewing the index finger of said hand. It was all a blur. I screamed something. I ran into the room, and the day shift and nurse ran after me. It took all of us to wrestle her finger out of her mouth. She screamed and growled in protest the entire time. Mouth and yellow jagged teeth covered in blood and bits of flesh. Helen had chewed the meat off of her finger. The doctor was called in, and he said that he had never seen anything like it, and she would need skin graft surgery. It was more than I could take. I walked out of that nursing home and never went back. I didn't give any notice. I didn't even call. I remained traumatized by Helen, and I never worked as a CNA again. I'm a long-haul driver for a moving company, and my last run will be the last one that I ever drive. I'm in Minnesota, on my way to Portland, Oregon. The first two days driving was fine, a little tight on time, but not too bad. The third day, I will never forget. 
I had run out of time and I was not able to find a room to stay at in Montana, so I had to sleep in my truck. It's not a sleeper cab, just a normal box truck. I've done this before, so all was fine. I was in the mountains, and I was the only one parked at this rest stop. I knew that the next town is about 30 miles behind me. It was about 11.30 at night, and I'm getting ready to go to sleep. But then for what felt like no reason at all, all the hair on my body stood on end, and I froze as I looked out the windshield, and there was a man standing about 20 feet away, just staring at me. I sat there frozen for what felt like an eternity. He began to slowly move away, all the while making eye contact as he backed up. Once he was out of sight, I was on edge for another hour or so, constantly checking the windows. I finally became relaxed enough to try and get some sleep, and that was the worst idea I could have had at that time. I was abruptly woken up by this scream. It sounded like nothing I can describe. It was harrowing and terrifying. I'm a big guy. I was in my 20s and 6 foot tall. But this sound woke me up and put me into such a panic and fear that I will never forget. I turned on all the lights in the truck and what I saw I can never unsee. The man was standing right in front of the truck, completely naked, with blood all over his face. He began rapidly running around the truck, pounding on the doors and trying to open them. I was so terrified I couldn't move. He began to throw rocks at the windows, and they began to crack. This broke me out of my trance of pure fear, and I started my truck. I floored it, trying to get away as fast as the truck would go but it wasn't accelerating as it should. It crawled forward slowly, and then I realized he had slashed all of the tires. I was trapped in this box with no escape, no cell signal, and 30 miles away from anything or anybody else. I thought for sure I was dead. But there was one place that I might be able to make it to. The restroom. I could lock the door if I could make it, but that was a good 200 feet away, and there was a lunatic with a knife outside. I watched as he kept going around the truck and waited for him to get to the back. That would give me the best chance of getting away. As soon as he was midway up the passenger side, I opened the door and ran like hell. I made it to the bathroom and locked the door right when he slammed into it, and he began screaming maniacally. I backed up to the wall and just waited. I stayed in that bathroom until morning, when eventually the scream stopped, and after a while, someone knocked on the door. The knock was gentle, and eventually a woman spoke. Hello, is anyone in there? This is Montana State Patrol. I was so on edge, I demanded to see her credentials. She slid them under the door, and after examining them, I opened up. She gave me a pleasant smile and I peered behind her at my truck. There was blood all over my windows. I was taken to the hospital due to dehydration and shock. All is well now, but you better believe I quit that job.
This happened four years ago when I was 16 years old. Nothing scary has ever really happened to me apart from this. One night I woke up, needing desperately to use the bathroom. My house was pitch black. Only the vague orange light from the street lamps through my blinds made my room just barely visible. The first thing I noticed is that the air was absolutely freezing. It was winter after all, but I didn't realize my house was so poor at retaining heat overnight. The thought passed and I fumbled my way along the hallway, holding onto the banister as I made my way to the bathroom. I waved my hand, about to pull the string that turned on the light. I pulled it, and then the overly bright light in the bathroom turned on, and I squinted. I did my business, and just as I was about to exit the bathroom, I looked through the slightly ajar door, and there was a window I could see at the bottom of the stairs, right next to the front door. The window had a translucent white curtain over it, so I could still see outside. I squinted my eyes to see more clearly. There was someone standing at the window next to the front door. All I could see was a dark silhouette, but I could tell it was a man. My initial thought was it must be a delivery. But wait, it's four o'clock in the morning. There's no way this is a delivery. My heart began to thump furiously against my chest as I watched. The person didn't move. They just stood there for what seemed like forever, but was really less than a minute. Thoughts raced through my head. As I contemplated my actions, they suddenly just turned and walked away. I stood in place, blinking, and then when my legs finally obeyed my thoughts a few seconds later, I quickly ran down the stairs to check if the door was locked. It was. I pulled back the curtains and peered out the window, but the driveway and street were empty. All I could see was the early morning frosted pavements and orange street lights. Surely they didn't go down the path to my backyard. I sprang into action again and ran to the kitchen to my back door. It was wide open. It was pitch black outside, and I was terrified beyond belief. I ran and slammed the back door as quickly as I could and locked it with fumbling fingers. I then stood there, not knowing what to do next. I strained my ears listening for something, anything, but all I heard was deafening silence. I looked through the curtains again and didn't see anyone. I woke up my mom and she checked the house with me. We never found anyone and nothing has ever happened since. I honestly don't know what to make of this experience, but it was truly something that you would see in a horror movie and it was the scariest night of my life. I experienced sleep paralysis one time. I was nine years old and in fourth grade. It was the middle of March, which meant that the parent-teacher conferences started in my school. I wasn't a good kid. I never did homework and was too hyper in class. My teachers hated me. I knew that they would tell my parents what a piece of garbage kid I was. Therefore, it was always a stressful time. On top of the impending grounding I was sure to receive, my grandmother died the week before. We weren't very close, 
but at that age, I wasn't accustomed to death. It was traumatizing watching the cancer destroy her. The morning my mom got the call about her passing, she kept my sister and I home from school while she went to deal with the aftermath. My sister had no further experience than I did dealing with it, so she was no help. I got really sick from the stress. My school would be a half day to make time for the conferences without making teachers stay too late in the day. Being that I was stressed and still dealing with my grandmother's death, I ended up taking a nap. For me, that was uncommon because I have had insomnia my entire life. Also, since it was half a day, it was about 3 p.m. and not dark outside, so I could see my entire bedroom. My sister was outside with her friends, and my parents were still at work at the time, so I was alone. My bed had all of my school stuff on it, so I was very uncomfortable. With the light from outside, my stress, discomfort, and issues sleeping, I believe I couldn't fall soundly asleep causing me to wake suddenly. I felt strange. I couldn't move anything besides my eyes. I looked down and saw a woman sitting next to my bed. The woman had brown hair and a bun, a heart-shaped pretty face, and was wearing a faded old tan dress. The dress reminded me of something from Little House on the Prairie. She wasn't somebody I remember seeing before. She was crying and looking down at her hands. Next to her was a wooden bucket full of water and a white cloth floating at the top. She noticed me looking at her and smiled. That moment, it became difficult to breathe. She started reaching up to my face, saying that it would all be okay. I shut my eyes as she wrapped her fingers around my throat. I started to cry. I suddenly woke up and felt normal again. When I told my mom, she didn't believe me. Nobody in all of the years I have told this story has believed me, except for my sister when she experienced sleep paralysis herself. And now that I'm older, I realize that what I went through likely was caused by chronic stress. On April 24th, just a couple weeks ago, my boyfriend and I drove from Minnesota down through Iowa and Nebraska to Colorado for a family emergency. We made a pit stop to stretch our legs and also so I could look for rocks for a little bit. I found a wooded area near a park that had shallow runoffs from the larger river nearby. It was about 6 p.m. and I've never been to the area before. So I put on my rain boots and rock hunting gloves made my way down this little hill and into the woods. This place looked like it had been flooded recently, or maybe some kind of overflow area for the nearby rover, because there was a lot of debris, garbage, and downed trees that were smooth from traveling down the larger river. So I'm walking around examining the ground looking for some rocks, when I see this men's athletic shoe that still had a sock in it. My first thought was, Damn, what if there was a foot in that shoe? So I walk up to the shoe to inspect it. Inside, 
There was what I thought might have been some rocks, twigs, dirt, and leaves. Figured maybe someone stepped in some mud and lost their shoe. And sock? I mean, I've lost a shoe while rock hunting before. It's weird that the sock was still in this one. But who knows, there was a lot of random stuff in the area. I spent about a total of one minute looking at this shoe. So I continue my search for rocks, and a little further this runoff, I see a bone that I picked up to show my boyfriend to ask what kind of bone it was, and how creepy it would be if it was a human bone. I honestly didn't think it was actually a human bone, because I definitely wouldn't have picked it up. I assumed it was an animal bone, and I figured the odds of it being human were slim to none. My boyfriend said, oh, it's probably just a deer bone or something. So I dropped it and kept looking for rocks. I didn't find any, and we went back to the car, and the rest of the details of the trip don't really matter. I think we were in this area for about 30 minutes in total. So fast forward to last night. I was laying in bed scrolling through Facebook and came across this news article from a true crime page that I follow. The title said something along the lines of this. Body of missing person found in Iowa. Cause of death still under investigation. My blood went cold. Having not even opened the article to read the location or any of the details, I just had this gut feeling. I instantly thought of the shoe with the sock in it and the bone that I had seen and picked up just two weeks before. So I click on the article, and as I'm reading it, I see that the body of a person who went missing over the winter was found along the bank of the larger river at the park that I was rock hunting. And the case remains unsolved. I hardly slept last night, because I had this overwhelming feeling that the shoe and the bone might have belonged to that person. I called the police department that was handling the case and explained everything to the dispatch lady. The tone in her voice changed and told me that this case has kept her up at night. She had me send an email with photos I took from the area and Google Maps aerial screenshot where exactly I was. She thanked me for calling and said that the head detective on the case would be getting in touch with me in the next day or so. I can't stop thinking about this whole thing. I really hope that my findings will be able to give some sort of clue as to what happened to this person that I found at the river. You see interesting things working nights as a janitor, such as life-size dolls under the bank president's desk. You learn some hilarious quirks like an official wanting the vacuum marks perfectly parallel on his carpet because he gets upset otherwise. Sometimes you see things you can't quite explain, like the reflection of a dog in a mirror that is never there when you turn around, but shows up night after night. Some things are quite chilling, like when the building music would switch on all by itself as I turned out the lights. Of course, being in empty buildings alone at night made everything take an extra dimension of spookiness. Only one thing really and truly scared me, however, because it was more tangible than Mirror Dog ever could be.
and more dangerous. It was a miserable night, with blizzard conditions that are not uncommon in the winter here. The wind was howling. Snow was blowing. It was dangerously cold. Altogether the kind of night you don't want to be out in. My last building for the night was on the outskirts of town, in a quiet business plaza by a large public park. There were no nearby houses, and nothing in that area was open at night. In short, there was no reason for anyone to be out, especially in that weather. This building was not a spooky one, just isolated. I made an absolute habit of always, always locking the doors of buildings I was working on, because even in a safe town, alone, at night, made me feel too much like a target. That night was no different. I know I locked that door, and if I hadn't closed it firmly, the strong wind would have made sure it was closed. I went about my usual routine, turning all the lights on all three floors, and then setting up my supplies. The building had an odd layout, with a sort of bird's nest loft that the boss's office was in overlooking the main floor. I usually started with the loft and headed up there, but realized that I had forgotten something and headed back down. I was distracted, and the building always annoyed me, but I wasn't listening to music and didn't have earbuds in. I was reasonably alert, so I was a little surprised to find the side door wide open with the wind rushing in and snow already drifting up. I froze a bit because there was no reason that that door should be open. I checked the parking lot quickly in case the building owner had for some reason showed up in the middle of the night. No cars but mine. After locking the door, I started searching the building, starting with the basement. I didn't see anyone, and nothing was disturbed. As my search reached the loft level, the reflection of the basement lights in the stairwell went out. Then the lights on the main floor went out, and I heard the door bang open and rattle in the wind, so I shut myself in the office and locked the door. Eventually, I admitted to myself that I had to finish the building, or I would likely get fired. So I went out of the office and closed and locked the outside door for the third time that night, turned the lights all back on, and cleaned faster than I ever have before. I should have called the police. Luckily, nothing happened that night, and I never saw anyone. But there's one thing that I'm sure of. At one point that night, I was not alone in that building. This happened to me last summer. My mom and brother went to California for a week to go visit family, so that just left me alone with my dad. I had just taken him to work since his license was revoked, and I went home to take a quick nap before I had to go to work myself. I woke up at around 9 a.m. and started to get ready for work when I suddenly started to hear some noises. I sat in silence, and I heard the sliding glass door which is underneath my bedroom, open. I just stood in my room, confused, and listened. 
I then heard heavy footsteps coming up the stairs, so I quickly went to lock my door. I backed away from the door, and what I heard next had me frozen in place. All of the cabinets in my parents' room began to violently open and close. This went on for a good two minutes, when it all stopped suddenly. I got down on my hands and knees to try and peek under my door when I heard footsteps approaching. And then, to my horror, I saw a pair of mangled, dirty, gray feet stop at my bedroom door. Whoever this was was not wearing shoes, and it looked like they hadn't in a very long time. I quickly but quietly got up and took the pocket knife off of my desk. I then picked up my phone and dialed 911. When the operator answered, I whispered that someone was in my house. The lady told me that an officer was on their way and asked me to wait on the line. I stayed on the line with the operator, but the whole time I was just waiting for the worst to happen. Eventually, she told me the cops were at my house, but I had to somehow make my way downstairs to open the door to let them in. At this point, I pulled myself together and let my adrenaline take over. I opened my bedroom door slowly, and there was no one there. I slowly crept downstairs with the knife in my hand and the phone to my ear. When I opened the front door, the cops told me to wait outside. After about ten minutes of looking around, they came back out, and what they said sent shivers down my spine. They told me that they checked every room and possible entrance and found no signs of anyone. They told me to call again if anything else happened. I finished getting ready and went to work. I got there an hour late and I told my boss what had happened, and things went on as normal. Later that night, I picked up my dad from work, and for some reason I never told him what happened. I thought somehow I had imagined it or dreamt it. I knew no one would believe me, and they would assume that I was either crazy or making up stories. It still puzzles me that there was no sign of a break-in. To this day, I'm still confused about what happened, and the experience is burned into my brain. It wasn't until a few days ago when I heard a similar story which made my blood run cold. I couldn't believe how similar the event was, and now I'm left with more questions. I still live in this house, and I hate it. I'm planning to move out soon, because nobody should be so afraid of where they live. Between the ages of 4 and 12, I was friends with a boy named Jack. Jack was always a bit of a strange kid, but being my neighbor, he was my first friend in life. Jack and I used to play outside every day, whether it was football, going to the park, or even tag in the street. You name it, we did it. One weekend in the summer when we were eight years old, it was a scorching hot day and two of the kids in our street were having a water fight. Having some water guns in our shed, I thought it would be a great idea to fill one up and join in. So as the day goes on, we are having a great time, and a few other kids had joined in with their water guns. This is when Jack comes out with one of those insulated flasks. Without warning, he hurls this flask at me, but luckily he missed, 
The flask hit the pavement, and as the water came out, I saw steam rising from the ground. Jack's mom came rushing out of her house and screamed at Jack, telling him to get inside. Being eight years old, I didn't realize just how serious this was. A couple years later, me and Jack went to our local park. When we got to the park, Jack asked me if I wanted to see something cool. He then pulled out a BB gun. Jack said that he got it off of his dad, who said that he could shoot cans with it. But when me and Jack went into the forest behind the park, Jack then started firing at random kids who were playing in the forest with us. I told him to stop a few times, but he told me to stop being so boring and continued with his crazy behavior. I then made my way home, where Jack would follow, shooting at me every so often, hitting me in the shins a few times. I told Jack to grow up, and then told him I didn't want to hang out with him anymore, in school or after. I continued to see Jack in school who would smile creepily at me, and would motion slices across his throat. One day I was in my garden with my cousin playing, and we looked up to Jack's bedroom window and I saw that with a tie, he had made a noose, put it around his neck, and gestured with it that he was going to hang me, all the while with a sinister smile on his face. Jack became very odd, and with our houses being attached, and us unfortunately having the same back bedrooms, I would hear him hysterically laughing late at night, and would hear bangs on the wall at ridiculous hours. Shortly after I turned 11 years old, Jack and his family moved away, and life was so much more peaceful. I continued to grow up and lived out my mid-teens with great friends, and Jack became a distant memory as I eventually moved away to university. I'm 22 years old now, and when I visited home this past summer, my parents informed me that Jack had been admitted to a mental institution after he attempted to kill his mom. This shocked me, and I didn't quite know what to say, but these old memories began to flash back to me, and I recalled the event with the water. My dad actually told me that Jack's mother had told him that the water he threw at me that day was scalding. That day, Jack attempted to throw almost boiling hot water at me. I have no idea what was going through his mind, but I'm glad that he's getting the help that he so obviously needs. This happened a few months ago, July 29th to be exact. I am a female, and at the time I was only 18. Now I live with my mother, stepfather, and little brother in a three-bedroom apartment on the bottom floor. It is a nice place with two balconies, which are about eight feet off the ground because the building is built on a rather steep hill. Now the front door of the apartment is self-closing, and when it closes by itself, it slams rather loudly. My family had decided to leave and go out to eat, and since I was home, they didn't bother to lock the door. I decided to stay home because I am an introverted extrovert and had already been social enough that day. I wanted some time to myself. My family is located in a town in Nebraska that doesn't really have much crime. It is nothing like the part of town that we originated from. 
It is a town full of military families that have plenty of money. Pretty much the only things to worry about in this city is little brats who have been spoiled too much and think they can get away with anything. The apartment is set up pretty simple. You have the front door with a little hallway, which, if you go right, then you have the living room, kitchen, and dining room. Then if you go left, there is another hallway, which has three bedrooms and a bathroom. My room is the very first one in the hall. One cannot pass my room without me knowing. This was an intentional choice when we moved, due to my anxiety and PTSD. I have problems with paranoia because of past experiences. My little brother was intentionally put in the bedroom between my own and my parents at the end of the hall because of said paranoia. Mainly, my need to check on my family members after I have one of my terrible nightmares. Now this night, I had laid back on my futon in my room and had my bedroom door closed so that I could enjoy my privacy without my anxiety kicking in and making me think that someone could be in the apartment with me. I was listening to true horror stories through my headphones and reading Naruto fanfiction on my phone when I heard the front door open and then close. I glanced at the clock and it read 7.36 p.m. I thought, okay, so they are back, and my little brother will follow the same routine and burst into my room without knocking to come and bug me and let me know that they are home. I waited. No yell from my mom that they are home. No door opening. No little brother. Nothing. I took off my headphones and listened. I could hear someone walking around. The familiar sound of footsteps traveled through the entire apartment. I waited, my anxiety rising up in my throat. I sat on my futon, opening my mouth slightly to breathe quieter. Smooth, slow breaths through my nose and mouth at the same time. My heart still pounding. I looked at the door to my room, waiting thinking that it must just be me hearing things, thin apartment walls and such. I heard whoever was walking through my apartment go down the hall and then try to open my parents' locked bedroom door. I stared at my door even harder. I then heard them turn and walk back down the hall and stop halfway. Crap, they must have seen the light under my door, I thought. I watched the door, not wanting to move from my futon and have the metal futon stand make a loud creaking noise. They came to my door and then heard my doorknob start to turn. The instant I saw this, I ran very quickly to my door and then pressed my back against it, pinning both feet to the bottom of the door. I grabbed a nearby blanket and put it at the bottom of the door to block the light. On the other side of the door, I could hear someone breathing. No lock, just me holding it closed. I felt the door push against the weight my feet and legs were pressing into the door, and I knew that I wasn't imagining this. I can feel the door move. I still had my phone in my hand, and I quickly turned the call volume all the way up and dialed 911. A man answered, and I gave him my address. The volume was so loud that the person on the other side of the door must have been able to hear. 
I explained the situation to the dispatcher, and he asked me if I had anything to defend myself with. I told him that I had pepper spray, but that it was eight feet away, and I could not leave my position. The dispatcher agreed, and during all this time, the person on the other side of the door didn't move. Eventually, I heard something outside, and the person against the door immediately ran away. I heard them run through the apartment, over to one of the balcony doors, rip it open, and then jump out. And after, I opened my bedroom door, and went to the front door to open up for the cops. Nothing was taken, nothing was moved, and my family came home while the cops were there, and they freaked out. My mother almost lost her mind. I have no idea who it was that came into our apartment or what they wanted, but it has always been the creepiest feeling, knowing that they didn't take anything, so they must have been there for another reason. And this is the story of why you should always lock your doors, even if you're home. I used to live in a bad area. It was the west end of Newcastle, and at the time, it was so bad, it was safer for me and my friends to walk to town rather than go up and get the bus, as gangs of youths would hang around that area and cause trouble. So this was early one winter day at about 7 a.m. It had been lightly snowing and was about negative 8 degrees a particularly cold spell at the end of the 1990s. On this day, we had heard that the River Tyne had frozen, and this was an unusual sight, so we decided to walk to town along the river to avoid the bus stop. There was snow falling, so we were having fun and walking down to the riverside path and generally enjoying our early morning walk, throwing snowballs at each other and sliding around on the ice which had formed on the path. Once we reached the river, it was indeed frozen, and we walked along the side. We were the only people there, and there was not another person in sight. Now the river had jetties which were big wooden pier-like structures, which went out into the river and were now mostly used by fishermen. As we approached one of these, we made a joke about trying to walk on the river ice and how we would probably end up stuck and needing help. At this point I saw a man under one of the jetties, apparently bending over looking for something. So I said, We'd end up stuck down there like him. And then we looked, and looked closer. This man was not moving. Being young, we just assumed that it was a washed-up mannequin from some stag night, which had ended up in the river somehow. But there was something about this situation which was just... strange. It was very difficult to get down to where it was, and none of us wanted to get closer. The skin on it was pure white, and it was wearing what looked like black clothes. We could not see the face, just the body bent over the beam supporting the jetty. Being the 1990s, cell phones were not really a thing yet, so we did not know what to do. I wanted to get to a phone to call my mom and tell her to come down, so we remembered there was a phone box a little further back, and I volunteered to run back to it and make the call. 
On arriving at the phone box and calling home to my mother, my mother just thought that we were trying to get a lift to town and refused to come pick us up. And that was when I used my very serious voice, and she seemed to understand that this was real and not some excuse to get picked up. I ran back to the jetty, and another man had arrived who was also concerned that it might be a dead body. None of us wanted to get very close to it. He had a phone and called the police. They arrived about the same time as my mother. She instantly insisted that it was just a mannequin and that she would take us to town and we should leave. We were then somehow convinced that she was right and were a bit embarrassed about thinking that it was a dead body. The man who called the police also decided to leave and continued his walk. Just as we got to the car, we saw the river police boat approaching in the distance and decided that we should at least explain to them our mistake. So we waited for them to arrive. They pulled up to the jetty and one of them climbed up the ladder and came to see us. We explained and he laughed and said it was okay and that they would remove it and it was no problem. So we pointed out where the mannequin was. As the river police officer looked over, he instantly became super serious upon seeing it, got on his radio and summoned the local police and the fire brigade to attend. Suddenly police appeared from everywhere and we were taken to one side and interviewed about the situation. At this point we knew that it was an actual dead body. The firemen arrived and used inflatable sheets to reach the body. The policeman told us that we could stay and watch, but that it was not like what you see on TV shows, and we should seriously consider just leaving. He stood with us when we decided to stay, and explained what was going to happen. This is where it escalated fast. The firemen approached the body, and two of them got hold of it, but it was frozen solid to the wooden beam. We thought that they would just gently ease it off, but that is not what happened. Two more firemen went down, and they all pulled on it as hard as they could. There was a huge noise, which sounded like a huge tree branch snapping, and the body just broke in half. Crabs suddenly emerging from inside of it, falling onto the mud below. They then threw the top half of the body into a body bag and started working on the lower half. Another huge snap. His legs broke. More crabs and river creatures burst out. And then they dragged the two parts of the body up onto the path. They then lined up three rookie police recruits right in front of the bags. They made us walk quite far away. Then they opened the bags to show the new recruits what it looked like. What I saw was like something from a horror movie. His face had crabs emerging from the eye sockets, and his lips had been totally eaten away. The body was totally bright white, and the hair was gone. One of the policemen threw up. It all happened so fast, there was barely any time to process all of it. We were later contacted by a reporter who told us the man's name was Jimmy, and that he had been due in court on serious criminal charges and that the police believed he had jumped into the river rather than face a long time in prison and made the front page of the local paper. 
I still walk along the same path quite often all these years later, and I often stop for a while where we found the body. I have never seen anything like that since, but it was certainly an event which made us no longer feel like children, rather adults realizing what the world is really like. In 1984, there lived an old widowed lady by herself in a two-story house who was completely immobile and bound to her wheelchair. Ever since the mysterious death of her husband, she required the aid of a caregiver who would visit her daily to help her with everyday tasks. What made it even more difficult was the fact that the two floors of the house were only connected by an old staircase inside. When the old lady needed to move between the two, the caregiver would have to carry her frail body like an infant up and down the stairs. One day, the police received a call from the widow. There had been a murder. Since police units were scarce at the time, and the murderer had already fled the scene, only one detective was sent out to conduct the initial crime scene report. He arrived to see the caregiver's body splayed out on the floor with her vocal cords ripped out in a pool of blood on the first level of the house, with the old lady atop the staircase in her wheelchair, watching him, still and silently, seemingly in shock. He could immediately rule her out as a suspect due to her inability to move up and down the stairs and because she was trapped up there the time the murder took place. It was similar to the death of her husband many years ago, who had suffocated in his sleep on the couch downstairs. The detective put on gloves, took photos, swabbed for evidence, and covered the body until the coroner arrived later. All routine business. He scoped the house downstairs for any clues, then asked the old lady if he could look upstairs. She insisted that she was upstairs the whole time, and no one apart from her had been up there that day. But regardless of this, the detective ascended the staircase, to which she hesitantly moved aside. Beyond the staircase there was a narrow corridor with three closed doors along it. He checked behind each of the doors. The empty bedroom. Nothing. The bathroom. Nothing. He became anxious as he slowly made his way to the final bedroom where the old lady slept. He opened it, and everything looked normal. A bed, a wardrobe, and a bedside table with a lamp. He checked every wall of the room in horror, as it was not what he discovered, but it was what he didn't discover that made him stop dead in his tracks and slowly reached for his gun in its holster. It was a detail so minor that they had completely overlooked it on the last investigation of the husband's death. There was no phone upstairs. He suddenly heard a noise as he withdrew his gun and rushed out of the room, only to find an empty wheelchair atop the stairs.